and welcome to Deep Shots. Today on the podcast, Slavik and I discuss another Christopher Nolan movie, 2017's Dunkirk. We've teased this one for a while, but I think we had a pretty good discussion about it. Is this the best movie we've ever reviewed? At least one of us thinks so. Have a listen and find out who. If you like our show, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Check out our socials on Facebook, Deep Shots Podcast, and on Twitter at Deep Shots Pod. If you have a question or a future show idea, drop us an email at deepshotspod at gmail.com. Okay, podcast starts in three, two, one. What's in the box? What's in the suitcase? What's in the box? Deep Shots. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Deep Shots. Wade and Slavic here. Wade, how are you doing? Good, good. I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited to get this one, this podcast out of the way. We've we've been teasing this one for a while. We're going back to the well today, and we're going to talk about Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. Yeah, I t- can't believe it was 2017. Yeah, which makes me think of Inception. I can't believe that was 10 years ago. Um, but we are on a little bit of a Nolan kick because we did Tenant the last time, and now we're. We're following it up with the Dunkirk finally, which um, I almost feel giddy about. Yeah, it's pretty interesting if you look at, you know, Nolan's career. You know, he started with Memento and Insomnia, which were kind of smaller, quieter movies. And it just seems like every movie he's made has kind of stepped up in, I don't know, difficulty um you know each time he's made one and you know i I guess you you could quibble about inception versus interstellar and what have you but i i think he he's continually looking to challenge himself which is interesting and what i take away especially from uh dunkirk and tenet is that christopher nolan is you talked about our top fives or what have you but he definitely is aspiring to be the greatest filmmaker out there because he is trying to make spectacle. And I, I don't know if that he t- technically makes great movies, you know, well-rounded characters, well-written characters, you know, as as a Paul Thomas Anderson or somebody else out there. But just from a pure movie-going experience, I think he's the best we have out there. Yeah, I don't disagree. I think, you know, like if you look at like Kubrick and and um, Oliver Stone, um, which I consider some of the greatest directors, screenwriters, um, they kind of did the same. Well, I, I don't know if they did the same, but they definitely took a stab at the military drama. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's something that the greats have to kind of tackle. Um, and Nolan does this. You know, he still puts his twist. Um, I, you know, I think I, in my synopsis that in my notes, I've written down three or four times that, yes, he's messing with the time here and there's some time issues. He loves time. Um, but all in all, it is exactly what a World War II drama should be. It, it hits all the right historical moments. It, it talks, it introduces something that I think a lot of people aren't familiar with. And it do, he does make, pretty entertaining yeah and again it's it's interesting you know obviously batman was his comic book superhero movie interstellar was his sci-fi movie 
bond, uh, tenant was his spy thriller bond movie. This is his war movie. And, you know, you just wonder how many genres are left for him, uh, to attack and, and will he revisit some of them and and and, and how does this movie making change when he starts revisiting these movies nolan is going to do a rom-com next yeah steve carroll and michael Caine. <laughs> yeah <laughs> all his boys back and yeah tom hardy and uh, hardy. yeah uh he'll find some female character that he, he he like working with and bring her bring him back is there a female character that he's brought back into a film well uh no, and that's that's you know that is interesting that I I just hadn't even thought of that is there are very few fully developed female characters in his movies. So um well fully developed. I don't know that he spends a ton of time fully developing many characters. Um I, Batman he did because it was all there. He already had a lot of that information mm-hmm. at his disposal written by others. So on his own work where he's the writer, I don't know that he feels totally comfortable exploring character depth. Now that said, as soon as I said it, I'm like, well, wait a minute. This guy tackles some sophisticated things that he has to spend a ton of time explaining all of that in his movies. So maybe mm-hmm. that's why he doesn't spend a ton, ton of time on character development. Gets a pass, in my opinion. Tenant is a great example of, uh, he's got a very sophisticated um concept that he wants to get through it's tough to have bubbly interactions with some some moral objective in in all of that um so one quick comment i did go back uh and look at tenant and Mm -hmm. went over the neil thing um and unfortunately when i looked at it it took a little bit away from because I don't know that he totally figured all that out. Like you had explained it great, but then I'd watched it. He, you know, Neil moves, stands back up. You hear the click, the doors open. Then there's another scene with the, um, what's the guy's name? The Ives. Um, well, the, so the cameras, you see where Neil is and he's hanging onto the door and then mm-hmm. he kind of slips past and runs up the tunnel. But he's inverted, so it's back. It's supposedly backwards, right? So if you think about it in those terms, and and maybe I'm just missing it in in a broader sense, that tunnel has no access to it. Yep. Um, so I came to the same conclusion you did when I when I rewatched, and I so, just say I did my homework because I gave myself that homework and I did it. So again, he's coming from that last scene, you know, or somewhere in that whereabouts, the last scene where he's having that conversation with uh, protagonist and Ives. So that's, and, and maybe he goes even further into the present before inverting and coming back. So he could give himself literally a couple of hours really to, to dig through that and come down the tunnel. But I mean, that's crazy to even have to think that way. Again, the biggest thing to me is that moment that the door unlocks. And again, kind of what I said it last time was, how does the universe decide when it unlocks? Because from Neil's perspective, if Neil, he's running down the tunnel, he's got to unlock it. So now if we're going to back it up from there, the door has to be unlocked at some point for Neil to lock it back 
So again, when does the universe, for, again, from protagonist's point of view, Neil has to go th through an unlocked door and lock it back and run up the tunnel. So when does the universe decide that that's the second it's going to unlock? It was just convenience, but... This is again, not a battle between the director and the audience. Correct. correct. And, um, the, the just, one, an interest, just an interesting thing to try to wrap your head around, but, yeah, uh, you know. It, I, it, and I will watch it again, because another thing that I noticed that I hadn't noticed before, and I don't want to spend a ton of time on Tenet, but I'll just make this one quick comment, is those colors, red and blue, mm -hmm. are throughout the whole movie. Yeah. It's not just in the, uh, and it's not just in that final 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, that red and blue is pretty um, consistent throughout. And, uh, mm -hmm. and I didn't pick up on it the first 20 mm -hmm. times I watched it. The 21st time I was like, oh yeah, there's the red and blue. So kudos yeah. to me. Um, so we digress though. I, I wanted to check off that I did my homework and I, yeah. and I did actually did my homework. So the one, th the one thing I do want to say again, it's, it's also interesting. We talk, I talked in Tenet how, it, the movie really didn't have a, a moral or you know anything else to say other than it was just this spy spy thriller story. Y you could almost say the same thing about Tenet and um, in that, or excuse me, about Dunkirk. In that, there's it's this is this movie is is basically just a third act. Um, it I mean it starts with the third act of the movie and it's just this very visceral experience. There's not really um, very much of an arc to the movie. It's just this one week, one day, one, one hour story. And it's almost more of a reenactment than it is a movie. Um, you can say that about a lot of war movies, right? Yeah. Um, I just think the historical drama of it, is a character itself and and so they you don't have to have the arc um that you mm -hmm. normally do with with any other but yeah great point do you want to tell us a little bit about the movie about uh you know what it grossed and what have you uh written directed by christopher nolan um but again i we should almost finger quote writing in this movie maybe there maybe the script had a lot of stage direction but the, this there's very few lines in this movie um and, but again they're they're effective when they are said nola doesn't spend a ton of time with the screenplay as far as words but he does have to have the direction and again he, he spent so much time with the time and the timelines and and, and figuring all that out and um yeah, I, I'm impressed. I'm, I'm impressed by this, much more by Tenet. Uh, but Nolan, Nolan is definitely on on the top five list for me. Mm -hmm. Production budget for this one was 100 to 150 million. I don't know why the Internet Movie Database and Wiki had this as far as a range. It seems like a big range. If 50 million here or 50 million there soon you start talking about real money yeah, it's just pocket change man uh, but he did make some money so a box office was 526.9 million dollars it was nominated for one two three four five six seven eight oscars it won three which i wasn't aware of it won for film editing sound editing and then sound mixing it was nominated for original score which was Hans Zimmer, I believe. Mm -hmm. Picture of the year, directing, cinematography, production, design. Now, 
trivia for you. In 2017, what movie won the Oscar for Best Picture? Hmm. Uh, was this was that was this the the Moonlight Year? It was the Moonlight Year, but what the hell is Moonlight? Oh, I you don't know heard of this movie. Moonlight is uh I don't know a ton about it, but it was uh that that was the year that there was the whole big controversy between Moonlight and La La Land and yeah, when Warren uh, Warren Beatty announced uh, renounced announced the wrong film. Um Moonlight has something to do with an African American boy. I again I didn't see it, so I, I'm not gonna uh yeah, I'm not speculate. Even sure what I have no idea what this movie is. I don't understand why it won Picture of the Year. It didn't even make any noise in 2017. I uh, I, th- I, th- I mean, I, I I heard a lot about it. I just never got around to watching it. So yeah, you know, we when are the Oscars? When are they coming up? Well, they're they're typically in what late February, but they've moved them back to April this year because they kind of expanded the window because of the limited amount of releases that we've had uh, had this year. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's kind of a quick general info on the um, on the movie. You want to give us the character's starting lineup? Yeah. So again, um, we haven't really mentioned it yet, but there's three stories here. You know, there's the land, which is one week, the 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 sea, which is one day, and the air, which is takes place over one hour. Um, on the land. Um, our our main character is uh, Tommy, but again, I don't even think we ever hear his name. He's just in the credits as Tommy, um, but that's Fionn Whitehead. I'd never seen him before. He plays terrified very well. He's probably got maybe 10 lines in the entire movie, um, but he's uh, he's just kind of an unknown British actor. I, th- I think he does a pretty good job for what he's given. We also have Alex, who is Harry Styles, who I'm going to probably just refer to as Harry Styles throughout the movie. Uh Tommy meets up with Alex uh, about halfway through the movie and they, uh, they make it, they go on these journeys together. And then the other biggest uh, uh, person to talk about here is commander Bolton. Who's uh, Kenneth Branagh. Who's again, we know Slavic's uh, one of his favorites. And again, must be a Nolan favorite because we're, he's reusing him. Uh, Branagh uh, is his, his biggest role in this movie is to be general exposition. He tells us what's going on in this movie and he, he just says, oh, you know, there's there's England and, you know, that's home and we want to get there and all oh, the boats are coming in. And he, he, he kind of just sets the scene for us in the at the sea. We have Mr. Dawson, who's Mark Rylance, who's a fantastic actor in this movie. He plays that very stoic, stiff upper lip, you know, quintessential English dad to me in this movie. And he's piloting the the uh, the moon dance. And he has two young men with him, his son, Peter. Um, who has just a solid quaff of hair on his head and, and a great looking turtleneck on. And then uh, there's George, who's kind of this little, like bulldog looking kid who um, volunteers to get on the boat at the last second and go on the journey with uh, with Peter and Mr. Dawson to go over to Dunkirk and try to rescue as many uh, English as he can. We also have the uh, Killian Murphy plays what is, uh, quotes, air quotes, the shivering soldier in the is listed um he's also plays a, a pretty big role in the sea um it was actually interesting to see him pop up because he's probably the biggest name actor outside of uh Branagh in this movie and for him to play this kind of very kind of almost a 
bit part, but I think he does plays plays the PTSD up really well. Uh, and then the last is the air. Uh, we basically we just have Farrier and Collins. Farrier is played by Tom Hardy, who's uh who's wearing his Bane mask again. Um, and then uh, Collins is played by Jack Loudon. Uh, did you also? There's also a third uh, pilot who uh, is, is yeah, Michael Caine. It was uh, uncredited, but he is Fortis leader. Fortis leader. But I, again, I thought that was interesting that. Uh, he keeps going back to the well with Michael Caine. I, how can you, you, as soon as he spoke, you're like, well, Michael Caine, sir, Michael Caine is here. Yeah, exactly. But that's our, that's our rundown of characters. I, uh, uh, that we have in the movie. Again, not a whole lot to talk about here. They, they all just kind of experience these events and there's not really an arc. I think Farrier probably might have the, well, Peter has a little bit of an arc in, in how he treats Killian Murphy after he hurts George versus uh, once we find out that uh, what happens with George and uh, but Farrier also with the, you know, he, he's been, he's checking that gas gauge the whole time and he finally makes his, when he makes his final decision, you, you, there's a little bit of an arc there, but yeah, we're yeah. Uh, right now too. We should probably, what we're doing here with the characters and the synopsis is we're trying to just give an overview without spoiling. We're, we're trying to be spoiler free. Once we get through this, we'll get into the spoilers and get into the nitty gritty. So yeah. just wanted to make that a uh, quick little point. So Slavic, you want to take us inside the arc of this movie? Uh, basketball references. Uh, we'll talk about college basketball after this. Yeah. Yes. So Dunkirk, Christopher Nolan remake of the same title film Dunkirk created in 1958. Did you know that? No, I did not. Yeah, there was another Dunkirk. Uh, Nolan adds a signature style and nuance to this film, which of course means we're going to mess with some time. Uh, he doesn't mess with it too bad. It's not anywhere on the tenant level or even the inception level. Although I'll argue that inception has nothing to do with time. It has more to do with dreams. It is uh, pretty plain. There's not much to figure out as far as the time. You just have to close your eyes and go, okay, it's this order. Uh, Nolan tackles the historical world war II nerve drama of the evacuation of the British expeditionary forces from mainland Europe off France's shores in 1940. Uh, Dunkirk is the name of a French port where soldiers need to be evacuated. And it's told from three individual stories with different timelines, which I know we'll cover once we hit the spoiler side of the cast. Ultimately, the timelines uh, converge and that completes the event of the evacuation. The opening scene introduces us to the main arc of the story, soldiers trapped on the beach with Nazis closing in. We later find out that German army holds their advance. So the Luftwaffe, which is the German Air Force, can pick the waiting soldiers off with bombs in lieu of wasting tanks and soldiers. We follow three soldiers on the beach and their efforts to escape. Tommy, as I'm sorry, as Wade introduced the characters, Tommy, Alex, and an unnamed soldier. Able to move freely, we watch them rather creatively try to find ways off the beach in between soldiers waiting in long columns, only to scatter when enemy planes drop bombs on them from above. The three of them are able to think of new ways to quickly get off the beach, but are quickly subverted, and as they are running out of options off the beach, so too is the audience. Yeah, the, the one thing I wanted to say there was I thought it was really interesting how this movie is 
the the vistas in the in you know especially the way it's shot it's very vast we have a lot of air we have a lot of water the land is 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 a little bit more confining but still the way it's shot i mean it's a pretty big beach but every scenario that tommy and uh the unnamed soldier and Alex get into is almost, it becomes very confining, even though there it's this very vast, you know, landscape that, that, that we're shooting in it. They, they, they kind of find themselves in a prison everywhere they go. Yeah. I also thought that um, a lot of the way Nolan shoots or whoever he has doing the cinematography is very similar to Michael Mann. You notice that? Well, I've, I've noticed the, the just the music and and how they pace things is is very similar to to heat a lot i didn't notice it as much in this movie but i in tenant and in uh, dark knight there's definite homage to michael haman and heat but yeah the second story in the film follows a civilian pleasure yacht with Mr. Dawson, Peter, and George. Peter and George being young boys to Mr. Dawson's elderly statesman. He does play it super well. They voyage across the English Channel towards the stranded soldiers in an effort to rescue them and bring them home. This is absolutely crazy that this actually happened in real life. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. This is, believe me, they even call it out in the movie, they say you guys are like on a pleasure yacht. Yeah, you're a pleasure yacht. To the to to a battle, a naval battle, and it, it when you when you sit down and think um, that this actually happened in real life, that three hundred some odd soldiers were evacuated from the beaches in France this way, unbelievable. Yeah, I just again the the greatest. I think the best line that came out of this uh this arc is again right after he says you you know your pleasure yachters the killing murphy is trying to get them to turn around and go back to england instead of proceeding towards france into the war and uh Ryland says men my age dictate this war why should we be allowed to let it send our children to fight it um yeah. it shows just how desperate the british were and how all of them are affected by the war it didn't just sit on you know people had to take action to, to, mm-hmm. to save these guys so it was the story is incredible their voyage isn't without peril and they are led by their duty-bound captain mr dawson towards the men on the beach uh shivering soldier who we already know is uh played by murphy does uh for as little as he has to do he does an excellent job and it's just a heartfelt performance. And we'll get to it on the spoiler side because it just shows you how devastating war is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just, it, it, and it's, it's fantastic. I love saying fantastic. Um, the third story follows uh, the um, Fortis leader, Farrier, and Collins. These guys are pilots and they're flying Spitfires. They are supporting the efforts across the channel against the Lumpapa, and they end up supporting some of the action on the beach. Um, this is Howard Hughes at his best. I mean, this is some awesome, awesome aerial fighting. Um, it's amazing. 
as far as the camera work and how they're using these planes to maneuver around and um, not only are you completely terrified by watching this German bomber go across the channel, but you're equally as terrified by what you can't see, like the planes that are coming from the sun in, in, in one instance. It's, it's Top Gun. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's Top Gun set in World War II. I mean, it can't be any more homage to Top Gun than in that very first dogfight when the... Uh, they they split up and Collins uh, says he, he's on me and, and and Bane or Bane Tom Hardy gets the line I'm on him it's just just awesome it's very that hero that that pilot that that guy that you want to be you want to be in that cockpit with him yeah, right um, and it's the only time you actually see any enemy really until the end um, they're not. It, this Nolan goes out of his way not to make this a Nazi bash film. Um, mm. You just know that they're there. And uh, the only other time you see them functionally doing anything in the war is in the planes. And there is a submarine out there too, that launches a, a torpedo. Mm. The three stories cross along different timelines. And in some instances they merge and in other instances, they're somewhat unrelated. The history and the survival instincts both on the macro scale, civilians crossing the channel to save the soldiers, and the micro scale, individual sacrifices of the pilots and the soldiers on the beach drive the movie. There are moments of sheer terror. Nolan utilizes the musical score and the events in the three stories to display that terror. Less so than, say, Saving Private Ryan. There's no gore to speak of. But in the end, the English do save their boys and they do get them home. Performances by the main brunt of actors superb though maybe not heavy in lines their physicality and expression is in tone with the movie there are honorable mentions for kenneth brana as commander bolton and james drc as captain winnett as wade has already expressed they represent the british leadership at the beaches but all in all it is a good movie with a decent ending in that the British are able to bring their boys home and we're able to continue the war. I wonder how different it would have been had the Germans understood how much they had these guys by the cojones because they didn't realize it and they were just toying with them. Um, and one final comment, 40,000 of the men didn't actually make it off the beach. It's just mm -hmm. historical, historical thing. But that's it. That's from inside the ark. Nice, nice, good job. Spoilers afoot. Now we're gonna. If you haven't seen it? Go see it. Come back. We got some uh, discussion on some favorite scenes, some things we liked, some things we didn't like. But uh, spoilers afoot. Yeah, for sure. This is a fantastic movie. I mean, it starts off just grabbing you and i talked about it on the last podcast uh that very first scene uh you know they're these these french or these excuse me these english uh soldiers are walking through this french village and there's pamphlets being dumped on you dumped on these guys and we that's where we first see tommy the pamphlets are telling these soldiers we've got you surrounded you know you're you're done uh and again like slavic said they're they're kind of toying with them but it's a very quiet scene. You know, one of them is trying to smoke a butt. The uh, you know, and Tommy is trying to find a place to 
take a deuce and out of nowhere bullets just start flying in it just it grips you and right then that soundtrack strikes it uh kicks in and it's just every the soundtrack is such a character in this film it it, it just adds anxiety throughout it it's almost like it's it's very heartbeatish um as the as the noose titans in these scenes the 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 pace of them gets it gets quicker and quicker and quicker and there's there's a lot of it almost like a, a time bomb in in a lot of them and you know again we talk about nolan's use of time there's a lot of ticking sounds actually in the score um as they but again the, the pace of it quickens as we move along through this scene especially but also other scenes that we get to as Tommy gets off of the, out of that French village, he gets onto the beach. Slavic talked about the columns. He, he walks into these columns of men just waiting for boats. And we, we get, they, we see the, the additional terror of these guys being stranded on the beach and they're just sitting ducks for, for the German dive bombers. And that first bombing scene is, just incredible with everyone hits the deck and we just see the bombs, you know, 50 yards away, 40 yards away, 30 yards away. And it's just coming right towards them. And it luckily stops right before it gets to them. But I mean, just the, the intensity there is just something to behold. Yeah. That combination, that scene, that scene that you were talking about at first with the five soldiers, just kind of perusing through that French village and then realizing well, realizing they're getting shot by bullets is, is a great way. And we talked about Nolan being able to really start a film off the right way and get you sucked in. That scene that you're talking about with the uh, dive bomber, it's we've talked about framing pictures in, in these movies as like a, a poster. And there's this column of soldiers and you see the back of their heads and they're wearing these helmets they're all facing the same direction and there's a little bit of nuance to the sound. And then you can hear it in the distance that propeller whizzing at some distance up. And as you hear it, as the audience, the guy, it, one of the kids in the column, one of the soldiers turns his head and it's just such a powerful scene. Cause you know, these guys have no, no way to defend themselves. And then it cuts to the bombs falling, or you can hear them whistling, which is, I think, common for a World War II. There's no introduction needed for a bomb whistling through the air. And it just comes boom, 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 right through the beach, ripping through all these guys. What a, I mean, it's just a great scene. It's, it's a great, powerful scene that just, you know, you, you're almost saddened by appreciating it because, in order for that scene to exist, those folks had to really go through some terrible things. And now it's turned into an art that you can appreciate, but you're, I'm still like just totally in terror over the whole thing. It's, it's, it's mm -hmm. hard to watch, but it's very, you're able to appreciate it. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. The, the, the neck, again, most of my scenes revolve around just these kind of almost sheer terror, uh, trapped scenes for for most of these most of these soldiers that we see throughout the movie the next one that 
was just incredible to me was after they Tommy and Alex and the unnamed soldier who we find out later in the movie is French. Um, so we'll call him French soldier from here on out. When again, he's wearing an English man's uh, uniform that's Gibson. So he's I think he's listed in the credits as Gibson, even though that's not his real name. They get they get off of the beach and they get to a, a bigger ship, which I, I think might be a destroyer. I don't know. Maybe you can correct me there, but they, they're, they're hurting all of the soldiers down into the, the galley of the ship and they shut and lock the door behind them. And as soon as they shut and lock the door behind them and there's all these guys there, I'm just like, it just starts there. The anxiety for me. And it just, Oh shit. You know, these guys are, if, if this ship goes down, they're, they're all dead gibson or the french soldier luckily stays up and there's a just a great scene of him kind of looking out looking back at the beach and there's these other rowboats trying to get towards this destroyer to get to get on it and all these guys are yelling wait for us wait for us and then another man yells torpedo and you just see it whizzing through the water and you know chaos ensues uh luckily gibson or the French soldier uh, is able to unlock that door and allow a few of those soldiers to escape from down there. But again, the soundtrack here, it's, it, it, it's, this is the most time bomb sounding piece of soundtrack here is that the ship is uh, rolling to its side and, and, and it's, there's explosions going off and what have you. It's just, incredible and then as you, if you watch the extras to see that the, you know a lot of this was filmed in a tank but how practical this effect was is is mind-boggling uh you know it's just unreal filmmaking yeah i think that that earlier point of the music being like a stopwatch um almost a countdown to um i mean you really feel it while they're sitting there underwater. My two, my, one of my favorite scenes is this one. And then um, I, another one that has that kind of ticking time bomb sense musically is when Collins crashes his plane. Mm-hmm. His above hatch, the, the um, cockpit door won't open. Thinking. Mm-hmm. And he has water coming in on his lap. And finally, it overtakes him and he can't break free. He can't break free. And the worst thing, I think, is that when he looks outside the cockpit, there's actually one of these civilian boats out there that Mm -hmm. save him. So it's actually quite unusual for being crashed into the ocean. And there's somebody there to help you and you can't get out. And you Mm -hmm. feel that tension. You feel that terror of them, of him trying to break free. Very similarly to those, um, is it Alex and Tommy that are stuck in the um, gallows of the ship, and um, they they luckily the French guy just has a good heart. Of course, it burns him a little bit in the end, mm-hmm. um, but opens the door and, and they're able to get out. But how many men was that a real time? Was that a real countdown for that they didn't make it out? And, mm-hmm. It made me think of uh, Pearl Harbor and, and all of the ships that were, you know, torpedoed there and all the men that were drowning. And the, the, the part that sticks with me is as they're swimming away from the ship, you can still hear men screaming. Screaming. Yeah. 
let me out, let me out. But there is no, I mean, mm-hmm. unless you know where that door is, you're not getting out. And uh, it's a hard scene, hard scene. Um, yeah. For sure. Excellent as far as art. <laughs> yeah, for sure. The The next scene I wanted to discuss, you, you kind of already hit on it. Um, when when Gibson uh, takes his plane down, there's a couple of things that I, I, I want to discuss about it. Actually, I, I again with when the way Nolan plays with time here, the first time we see Gibson go down, it's from Farrier's point of view, and uh, Gibson cuts off communication. Farrier's trying to talk to him, and Gibson isn't responding. Yeah. But then he he kind of gracefully lands this plane from from Farrier's point of view, gracefully lands this plane. And we see, again, from Farrier's point of view, Gibson stick his hand out the window and kind of wave. And Farrier gives this kind of like wave back, like he takes it as I'm OK, you know, go get him or, or what have you. And so Farrier waves back like, okay. And he, and he takes off, but we see it a second time from Gibson's point of view and it's much more terrifying. Right. And it, I just, I, I thought that that was just genius to, to kind of show both sides of this and how our perspective changes the experience. Right. And Gibson can't get that hatch open and he's he's kind of he's he's not really waving at farrier but he's just like trying to he's doing the best he can to get it open and it looks like a wave to farrier's point of view but also just the couple of seconds before he lands that and just the kind of look on his face that he's kind of clinching like how do i get this thing and and not blow up or not uh you know blow it into a million different pieces yeah is it end um, over tail, end over tail, nose over tail. Yeah, but then the, the other part of the scene is again from Peter's and George's point of view. They see the plane crash into the water, and they're looking for the shoot. They don't see a shoot. Peter is saying, "No shoot, Dad. You know he he, he he's he, he's probably not alive. Let's let's move on." But uh, Rylance, uh, Mister Dawson is panicked and i I, and you don't you i would have been nice to be somewhat informed of uh mr rylance's or mr excuse me mr dawson's experience because his son is royal air force and we didn't really know that at this point but with that knowledge that you make at the end of the movie you now see that he really wants to go save that because that you know that could have been his son and I just when he turns around and he says, you know, damn it, Peter, I I hear you. He he, he might be alive. And just that hope that he has to try to save that pilot is, you know, again, it's kind of a gut punch later on when you learned that, you know, his son had died three weeks into the war and he was RAF. Um, just yeah. again, the, those three perspectives of, of that scene, I think are really, really incredible. The way Mr. Dawson, um, are, he should have been nominated for an Oscar because I, I feel in him when he has that conversation with his younger son, he, he says, damn it, I know, but I still got to go, mm-hmm. right? And, and you, when he, the way his expression is, he's being driven by a duty. He's being driven by... 
Like I had, like this has to be fulfilled because it's my obligation to do it. And he just does that so well. Um, that boat scene, the whole boat um, experience is just horrendous. Um, that that you know they come across this pilot. Obviously, they're able to help him, but really, the trip across the channel isn't super nice. They come across um, Killian Murphy, yeah. Killian Murphy, and he's shell shocked. He's uh, on top of sitting on top of a boat. Then uh, they are coming close to the shore they come across all these men that are floating in the water a ship is going under because it was bombed by a uh, nazi plane and then they realize that these men are soaked in oil and though hardy's character does barrier does shoot the plane it crashes into the oil so the men they were able to get yeah they survive but uh, a lot of men are just sitting in the water burning and there's that scene where he's the son, Peter, is it Peter, mm-hmm. is dragging uh, Thomas in the water. And I'm sitting there. And again, I think the music is ticking away mm-hmm. because, yeah, he's dragging him away, but he's dragging him underwater. Yeah. So he has no way to breathe. And you're sitting there like, pick him, slow down, let him get up, let him get up. You're far away. And you're like, you're like gut wrenched. And you're, you're, it's, 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 it's powerful. And, it, and it's, um, you know, what, what's impressive um, is that uh, it, and I'm, I'm not taking anything away from saving private Ryan, but saving private Ryan, as far as a world war two, as far as a comparison into the scenes that, that invasion into Normandy was kind of a shock and awe. You were just blown away by the violence and the gore for whatever reason you're still in this movie you're still shocked and in terror but it's it's almost more personal does that make sense like well for for sure and i think you see that mostly in tommy's journey um and it, it it's more than anything it's it's portrayed in that in the, in the last part of the journey they're first they're in this ship or this boat that's been beached on the on the beach and they're just stowing away and they're waiting for the tide to come in uh they 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 start taking on bullets from german soldiers doing target practice at first apparently um then the as the ship comes in or excuse me as the tide comes in the 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 ship starts taking on water it floats out to sea and again, it's it's kind of like this out of the frying pan into the fryer, like I've been talking about. They they bail from this ship, they start swimming towards a destroyer or another bigger ship. The, that ship gets bombed, and they're in the here in the middle of the ocean, and they're swimming towards another ship, and they're in oil, and you got a plane coming towards them. I mean, everywhere they turned, they're they're just in greater and greater peril. And I, 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 again, because the time we spend with, with Tommy, um, it's like you said, it does become very personal. Uh, but again, just seeing the, the, the levels, again, it's kind of, we, we talk a lot about how movies are video games, but it's just every level is just even more and more torturous for, for Tommy on his journey. Yeah. I, so I didn't get the, uh, 
I think it's the sense of the video game. And it's, I was doing some thinking about that comment actually. Are we, are movies becoming like video games or are video games becoming more like movies? I think, well, becoming more like movies. I think it's just our brains. You know, we, we played too many of them growing up. So it's, and still play. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, the boat stranded on the, on the, Beach is an examination in um, Lord of the Flies. Uh, they're all in there, and when they first get in there, they're like high fiving almost, like we're 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 saved. We've pulled this off. And then some some German soldier puts a shot in there, and I think it's Thomas that is has the wherewithal to realize, oh, it's just target practice. Just. Sh- keep quiet but of course eventually one of the bullets hits one of the guys and he screams mm-hmm. now they know that they're there mm-hmm. and just the amount of crazy that happens in that short amount of time they basically turn on a guy that saved their lives um and feed them to the wolves wolves it's just um a tough scene to watch um but does do a nice job of showing human condition in these situations. And, you know, I think it's good to see that not every, not every person, not every situation results in heroic activity. It, it, sometimes it's just human. And um, Nolan does a great job. And one of the scenes that has a little bit more talking for those soldiers than any of the other scenes, um, gut wrench, gut wrench. You're you're in terror. Well, and as far as uh, you said, you know, kind of the human, the human aspect of that. What I was, what I was really impressed by, or what struck me on one of my recent watches of the movie, was after. Tommy and Alex and the uh, the French soldier uh, get pulled back to shore by the rowboat, which actually is manned by Killian Murphy. I don't know if you ever caught that. Pretty yeah. Uh, um, but they they get pulled to shore and they're just sitting on the shore, kind of not really relaxing, but they're recovering from this onslaught of emotion that they've had to go through, and it just kind of struck me is they're in the middle of a war and there's no one really at this point that, you know, their crew, the rest of their regiment is gone or scattered. They don't have, they don't have a commander. They don't have anybody telling them what to do. Yeah. There's no charge. And they're basically there to just fend for themselves at this point. We see, we see several groups of soldiers, you know, taking rowboats and just going, um, there's that one soldier that goes into the ocean just yeah. to swim on his own. It's know, just, like, it, it, that was, that's incredible. He just drops his gun, drops his, his helmet yeah. and just walks in because he's be, yeah. and it that's, that's driven home by the, the fact that, and Branagh and, and I think it's James DRC have the, have the discussion about, you know, it, we're so close. You can, you can almost see home, but you know, they're saying like seeing it doesn't, doesn't get us there. Yeah. Um, but I, again, I was just struck by, you know, in normally most of our war movies, there's always somebody in car in charge going, you know, soldier, get on your feet and let's go. And there's soldiers just doing whatever the F they need to do to survive. And 
it's just interesting. You don't normally see that in a a World War II movie. Yeah, I um, that that it wasn't lost on me either that these guys are basically free to do whatever they want as far as survival, right? I mean, they're limited in in the geography and, and trying to figure out what to do. And the the thing that is somewhat impressive is they get beat up pretty heavily and and they just continue to keep trying to get out of there keep trying to get out of there um one thing i want to make a comment on was the killian murphy when you see him on the ship he's an officer and in command and a completely different person than when you run into him shell-shocked on top of the overturned boat just Mm -hmm. he played he's a phenomenal actor i'm glad that he's connected to nolan and that we see him in these in these movies um i wanted to mention have you seen him in whatever is it peaky blinders or i've heard a lot about peaky blinders but i have not uh tuned in yet so yeah i'm I'm, for whatever reason it hasn't gripped me either but it's on my list um do you have any other scenes that you wanted to mention well you mentioned a bit ago uh, about them just doing their best to survive. And after the, the guys get back to England, I, I just really loved that scene. They're all getting off the trains and there's a, a man handing out blankets and it, he's just telling out, well, well done lads. Well done lads. And Harry Styles, Alex uh, stops and says, all we did was survive. And he, he doesn't look up. And he just that that's enough, and and just sends him on their way, sends him on his way. Now Alex doesn't realize that the, the that guy was blind, and he, you know we turn you know turned about so he wouldn't look me in the eye and what have you, and so Alex is still feeling bad about himself that they were failures, but really, if you think about all they went through, you know Jesus that that's enough is an understatement like but still i i just the way the way that i mean that actor i don't even know who it is i've never seen that guy before that blind guy but it's just a fantastic line delivery with that's enough well interestingly enough that those guys were you know those guys on the beach that was kind of the tail end of everything they had gone through they were on the french countryside there fighting the germans full force and this was where um you know they they cut the french lines of french defensive basically in half and and punch through and they have no choice but to but because they're surrounded to get out of there so if you take it for what these characters have gone through they've been they've been on the march and and in some heavy stuff there for a while mm-hmm. um my one of my you know one of the the scenes that i liked and it was a total halloween hollywood scene is the uh Brana scene at the end where you know he's he's with that colonel and he's letting him go onto the ship and he says no I'm going to stay and help the French um it was a good good ending um for his arc um what did you think of the that last second heroics by Hardy um knocking out that plane while he's gliding well, they, that was it, that I, I had a little nitpicky there as far as how how many times he changed directions while gliding. It seemed like, and 
and was able to you know stay afloat that long but it was it was awesome yeah you know it, movie making but i, I was kind of like could he really fly that long and make that many turns i mean i would get it if he's just kind of floating straight but it seems like he turned around a couple of times while while gliding doesn't and, he uh, make a comment though that they have to go up to two thousand feet i i thought he was up at two thousand feet so i'm i'm trying to defend him maybe yeah. he's able to maneuver but <laughs> i don't know yeah but uh, but that was uh that was really cool I loved the part when he when he's got like 15 gallons of gas left and he's heading back towards England and he look he's looking in his rear view and he sees that hike that that Heinkel bomber and he's kind of making that choice like I can either make it back to England right now or I can you know go help my you know my my countrymen and he kind of gives this kind of like half shrug you know there's it's all wordless because he's in the air by himself kind of it again with a mask and it's it's i i talked about how in Tenet, how christopher nolan likes to kind of it seems like he likes to handicap his actors but the amount of acting that tom hardy is able to do with just you know his breathing and his kind of half shrug and then he turns around the plane and goes i just it's it, it's really 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 well done right nolan needs to do a firefighting movie <laughs> yeah. um, was there any other um picks or things that you didn't care for i the timeline stuff really bothered me the first time i watched the movie and i, I it kind of took me out of the movie and I, this movie definitely benefits from multiple viewings so i i, I mean i, I like the conceit of the one week, one day, one hour in the first two thirds of the movie are don't they, they, they're actually okay. It's that last half hour of the movie when there, there, there are, especially right there at the end when he's pulling guys out of the water, but Tom Hardy still hasn't, um, hasn't shot down the Heinkel yet. And and they're, they're literally, there's only about a five minute disparate amount of time there. That's, that's actually happening, but he's still showing things out of order. It, it just, it was a little screwy to me there. He should have synced up the timelines a little bit earlier in the movie and not made that last scene still kind of out of order. Um, but I, I do, I, I, I like the timelines, but again, at the end, I think it just got a little screwy. Um, the other nitpick I would have is what was going on what you, you mentioned that the Germans were kind of toying with them, but it seems like, and again, we didn't see everything that happened over that week, but why weren't the Germans just sending bomber after bomber after bomber at the mole? I, it, I mean, maybe that's just poetic license in the movie, but, uh, so, um, a little bit on the history, the, the generals that are, um, so there's fortifications along the French border there and the British are there to help the French fend off um, uh, the French. And there's an area there where it, it's not fortified at all because they don't think the Germans are going to go there because of the terrain. Well, they have these fancy tanks that can basically mow over anything and they go through that area and basically 
cut them in half. Um, and so it's happened super fast. Like, I mean, blitzkrieg, right? I mean, it's super fast, so fast that they are able to splinter these forces and not realize that they did it. So yeah, they, they understood that, um, there was guys over there and that they were closing in, but they were trying to get organized and they didn't have the full breath. They didn't realize that they got him until a little bit, a little bit later. I mean, they fortified, um, the British fortified around those defenses to protect the escape. Um, so they were getting some pretty stiff resistance. They just didn't realize it. Had they had realized it, all they would have had to do is sink a couple ships and they would have had no access. Yeah. Um, cause they, I, they did a good job of explaining why the Royal air force wasn't there is cause they were trying to hold their, you know, their, the ships, they, the planes that they had, they wanted to save for the coming battle that they thought was going to happen on English soil. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we didn't really get the German side of it. And I, I was thinking, well, maybe there's, I don't know, anti-aircraft guns that, that were, that the Germans were afraid of so that they didn't want to send too many planes that way. But I don't know. No, from what I understand too, they um, like the British were so um, beat up at that point that they had no ammunition to fend, fend off any kind of major invasion. They would have Hmm. been completely wiped out Hmm. um, had the German leadership realized, Hey, we got these guys. Um, mm-hmm. so, um, one of the things that, um, I love the movie and this is more of just a nitpick and, and something I didn't fully know, understand why, why did Nolan put this into the movie? And, and I was hoping we could have a discussion about it, but on the ship from Miss where Mr. Dawson and Peter and George are on. Um, I understand they got uh, Shivering Soldier Murphy from, you know, a ship that was torpedoed or whatever. I don't understand why dramatically George had to have that accident that he had. And it seems a little unusual. It seemed very extreme. Fall, he gets pushed or bumped down the stairs by Murphy. It's just an added layer of drama that I wasn't, I wasn't sure why it was added. Um, there was enough already going on that it just seemed a little overwhelmed that, I mean, it could have happened. I'm not saying it, it couldn't have happened. It just seemed for, this seems like a fictional tale. It just seemed like once a bridge too far in dramatic license. Yeah, I agree. And the, the only other nitpick I have was how, that would seem like a pretty big piece of wreckage that Killian Murphy was sitting on. There's no other survivors. He's the only one, but that that's uh, even getting way deep in the weeds of the, of the nitpicks. But yeah, I agree with you. It seemed like he just really wanted to pay that off with that final scene with, you know, Peter writing the art or getting the article written about George. Um, but what I did like about that, story of you know george's demise was again the way that peter and mr dawson handled killian murphy after that in that 
Peter finally realized that this guy's been through a lot and he doesn't need that death on his conscience as well. Like he's already probably seen hundreds of his brethren die and it was an accident and he was overreacting to, you know, the situation of the panic of having to go towards France. And yeah, it was, it was an accident. Um, but also, you know, they just, they just didn't want him to suffer any more than he already has. And I, I thought that was interesting. Um, it, it's interesting so- until you realize I'm a parent, right? So mm-hmm. Mr. Dawson's coming to my house and he's saying, sorry, your boy snuck on my boat. Yeah. And this distraught soldier pushed him down the stairs and killed him. But I let him go because he already went through enough. Yeah. I don't know that that plays well with me as a parent. You know, I mean, but I, that's, that's where I think it gets a little, little overloaded. It's just, but you know, you know, from that second that he jumps on the boat, that George is dying. Cause when he says, you know where we're going, George into war. Yeah. And you, you, you know, from that minute on George is on the uh, SS live forever right there. I, I, I definitely agree with you that it, it's, it's a little hammy, but I, I think there's other aspects of it which are well worth its time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't have any more nitpicks. Uh, no, I, there's not much, there's not much else to nitpick here. It's, I mean, it's, it's just an incredible movie. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually mad at myself that I didn't see this movie until about five or six months ago. And I really wish I could go see it in IMAX again, like Tenet. Um, yeah. It's it's an incredible movie. I, I I think it's I think it might be one of the two to three best best movies of this century that's been made. Mm. Um, I, I think that highly of it. And it's it's interesting again because I it gets its demerits for the uh you know the, there's not there's not a whole lot of story here. It's but just the spectacle of it. And if you watch those extras and I I've keep saying this about Nolan movies and his practical effects. This is just an achievement in filmmaking. I mean, there's, there's no, there's no way around it. There, no one else is doing stuff like this. All those flying scenes and, and those are real spitfires and, and real Messerschmitt uh, German planes that they, that they found and reconditioned and painted and mounted their IMAX cameras to, um, just incredible and and the ability to do a lot of that stuff at sea on the english channel just crazy and not have you know the motion of that ocean out there is you know they're doing it all in they did a lot of it on the english channel where there's just you know you're at the mercy of the sea to to pull this off is incredible to me incredible yeah. I mean, he did do Batman. <laughs> I, I, this, this movie is, I mean, again, I, I like Memento as a movie better, but I, I, I can, I, I'd have to sit down and, and think about it, but I, I'd be hard pressed to come up with another two to three movies that are better than this of the last 20 years. Wow. That's, uh, so let me ask you this is tenant better than this i don't remember no. what type five was no 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 
I, I think, I think this is again, it, it's, it's his best movie of the past 20, I mean, 20 years. I think Memento was in the late nineties or 2001, somewhere in there, but th- this is just an incredible movie to me. All right. So what's your score? Give me your score. I, I it's a, it's a 91 or a 92 for me. It's, it's, it's in the, in that range of the kind of the greatest movies of all time. This is the best movie that we've reviewed to me. Okay. Um, so I'll say, I'll say 91. I'm saying 87. Um, I think as I, at, this is one of those m- movies that over time is only going to get better. Um, and I, I reserve the right to revisit it and say that it is in the nineties. The only, the only thing that it, it's holding me back in it, it's, done very well the cinematography is done very well the story's done well but it's not a character driven film so i think you can do better with some characters um not that this movie needs characters i'm just saying a movie with some characters is going to get a higher score for me because i think writing dialogue and having relationships and how people react is is harder to pull off does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you think about like a Fast and a Furious movie, this is there's those movies are almost this movie's closest relative. Um, maybe, but maybe like a second cousin. Yeah, but again, just to to you know the the historical aspect helps this because you know we always love period pieces and what have you. But it's it's just the the level of sophistication in filmmaking here is just on another level from anything that i think has been done in a while yeah i i I don't disagree with that all right well i think we got it i think we can we check this one off we got yeah done nobody has to hear us say hey we still got to do dunkirk (laughs) but i hope what i what i hope is that you know Years from now, people still come back to this podcast and go, man, that was a great movie. And th- those are great scenes and, and want to watch it again. Because, uh, I, you know, I, I'm typically not one to to want to rewatch things. I know that you you like to rewatch things several times. But this is one that the experience of it for me is, is second to none. Well, I think Nolan. No. So of the movies that I rewatch, Nolan is a high percentage of movies I watch from Inception, Dark Knight. I mean, let's just say the Batman trilogy. Um, Tenet will be in that. Um, I got to I'm putting it on my notes right now. I got to give Interstellar another chance. Um, I probably need to give Memento another chance as well. Um, but they're they're He's just. He's on the Mount Rushmore of directors, screenwriters. He's going to be pushing the envelope. I'm curious what he's going to work on next. What is he going to do next? Tenet 2? Yeah. Dunker 2? Well, it will also be interesting to see who he's working for next because he blasted Warner Brothers uh, for their decision to to take the you know their, their movies to HBO Max. So... Uh, you know, I don't know what's left of that relationship. And he was really their last, uh, you know, big filmmaker that, you know, that, that they had out there, that, you know, their, 
their cornerstone director. So filmmaker who loved making movies for the theater. I don't think he mm-hmm. Nolan buys into this yeah. screen BS. I think he wants to push IMAX. I think he whatever the next and up up and coming filmmaking thing above IMAX is, he wants to push that threshold um, and give people a ride at the theater. And, and I think if there's one thing you can say about all his movies is they're a lot better in the theater. Mm-hmm. I'm, I don't know. Are you into this idea of TV moving into movies or do you like having them segregated, separated? What I don't like is that now I feel I'm going to, I mean, like the movies are one thing and there's one every, there's two to three a year and you, and you have to watch them. But if it gets to the point where I've got to watch two to three movies a year, plus 30 episodes of television, 30 hours of, of TV, because they're all going to be interwoven, interconnected, it's going to get too much. Um, but, you know, the other side of that is, you know, I do like having, the, you know, the options to watch things at home. But there are things that I, again, I, I defend Christopher Nolan till the end and in, in that if he wants to have his movies go in the theater, then I'm, I'm with him. I just wish I could go see him. Well, I look at it from a point you had made when we reviewed Mandalorian 2 in that you had made a comment about you were happy that Luke Skywalker was on in the Mandalorian in some respect, but, it, but also in another respect, you were... I don't know if Luke should have been on this screen on but if you think about where his arc, what like to me, Luke Skywalker doesn't belong on Mandalorian because Mandalorian is a shitty little insignificant speck in terms of the grander story. Right. Um, and that's where I think a lot of these shows that want to kind of bounce in between the movies are going to run into a, run into problems just because you're going to undermine some of the heavier characters and Mm -hmm. i like the fact that tony stark played by downey jr is reserved for the big screen not he doesn't make appearances in the shield Mm -hmm. it's just not what he's supposed to do I, i i don't know and maybe that's old school of me maybe maybe the new way of thinking is it's all media um, whether it's on the small screen, the big screen, it's all for your consumption and there are no boundaries or lines. And I think that's probably the way things are going. But in my mind, I'm still kind of the old school of reserve some stuff for the big screen, have some stuff for the small screen. I don't know. And again, hopefully the small screen stuff is more optional. That That's just my goal if it if it becomes required viewing i think they're going to lose um a good portion of their audience because if you have to have watched all eight episodes of wandavision to understand part of captain marvel 2 well no thanks you know i i i that and and again that's kind of what i liked about the mandalorian like you said it was the standalone story I mean, it it was tangential 
to the Skywalker stories, but now that it's tied into it, and again, may, maybe we'll never see Luke and Grogu again. Um, I, I highly doubt that we're gonna see Grogu again. But I would prefer that. But it's yeah, like, um, you'd prefer not to see Grogu again. I would prefer the so the way they did that story with Luke Skywalker showing up and taking him away from the Mandalorian. Now I'm of the opinion I would not, I would prefer not to see either one of them again. Don't take my baby Grogu away. Grogu's getting murdered by Kylo Ren. Welcome <sighs> to the bigger world. I you I I hope lightning strikes you down. It might. It doesn't change a thing. Kylo Ren is killing Grogu. <laughs> it sucks, but it's watch good. your mouth. Just watch your mouth. Thank you, JJ and yeah. Kathleen. Kennedy, Kennedy, Amy, Kath- yeah. Evil Kathleen Spawn Kennedy. that destroyed Star Wars. Thank you. The thing I wanted to bring up with you was in terms of war movies, is a war movie something that you typically enjoy watching or is it something that you shy away from? Like, I enjoy, I don't know why I enjoy watching war movies. Maybe... Uh, I like the bravado, the macho-ness, um, but I don't know. Is it something you like to do? It, it's it's funny you mentioned that because I did. I wanted to talk about this too. No, I don't, and I I don't really have an affinity for them. Um, I, I might have mentioned on a pod before. I mean, I respected Saving Private Ryan, but I, I never want to see that movie again. I saw it once in the theaters, and, and when it's on TV, like I, I actively run in the other direction because it, uh, like, it was the closest thing to experiencing PTSD. I think you could come from 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 a movie, um, but not and not all war movies do that, obviously. But I just, yeah, I was never terribly interested in 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 war movies and it, it, you think of the 60s and the 70s and the 50 50 60s 70s and how, how many there were how many war movies were made it's pretty interesting how they've kind of died off um they, there's not as many out there and i and i'm not sure why that is but yeah it's just not something i ever you know had an affinity for or needed maybe i was just too into star wars growing up i don't know Oh, that's funny that you said Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> Make believe wars are fine. Huh. Uh, yeah, I don't mind them. Um, I find them entertaining, especially when they're rooted in history. In history, um, there's a so Saving Private Ryan definitely makes an impression. But there was a movie that came out, I think, the same year or maybe the year after, a Thin Red Line. Mm-hmm. In a Thin Red Line. Mm-hmm. No, I never saw it, but I, I know what you're talking about. So very similar to the tone of Dunkirk where they're, you're in moments of sheer terror. Um, it's about the Marines hopping island to island in the Pacific to get to the, to the Japanese mainland. And the way the acting is, uh, there's some big name actors down like Cusack and Nolte and Woody Harrelson's in it. Uh, I'm not doing it justice because there's more, but just the sheer terror of 
that hill over there has a Japanese nest and your officers are telling you advance, advance. And you're like, I'm not advancing on that. Um, I think about that movie a ton and it makes a huge, it made a huge impression on me. There's another scene in there that made an impression in that there's an officer that kind of relies on his wife to be like the thing that's getting him through the war. And he gets a letter from her that basically says, I want a divorce. And it just totally wrecks him. And um, it's such a, it's like, I'm almost feel guilty for liking Dunkirk for liking Save It Private Ryan because it's depicting these horrible conditions. But for whatever reason, I find it extremely interesting and extremely entertaining. And um, I was hoping that you could be like, oh yeah, this is why I like it. And give me some kind of insight. I don't, well, I don't know why it is. And again, the, the things I end up liking about war movies are again, more the on the human side so th- if i had saw the thin red line i'm sure i would have been affected in i, I don't want to say enjoyed but respected the you know this the scene where this guy gets a letter from his wife um you know apocalypse now my you know, that's not i mean it's a war movie but the stuff i liked about apocalypse now is when they're on the boat listening to music and just seeing these guys interacting with each other um, you know, going down the river and like, you know, like I said, the, the one of the, the, the biggest, one of the biggest scenes that stuck out to me in, in Dunkirk is just how these guys are on their own surviving and, and, you know, having the, those human moments with each other on the beach. Um, yeah, I had an interesting conversation, um, a few nights ago with one of my friends where we were talking about Americans to, somebody that had never seen it. It was a group of us. And um, he goes, oh, no, it's a spy thriller about these spies that have infiltrated the U.S. and they're, they're getting into these gadgets and gizmos and they, you know, they murder and, and he talks kind of, a, of exactly what, what it is. That's mm-hmm. what it is. And I sit there and I go, no, 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 that's not mm-hmm. what it's about. It's about the relationship of Philip and Elizabeth and their kids and Stan and how they're all trying to build their lives. And and I wasn't wrong. It was just a different perspective and we were getting different things out of, out of the show. And we kind of like laughed because everybody looks at it from a different, different perspective. And I think you're right you and I tend to look at things from the character drama side of things rather than the action side of things. And others, others that look at Dunkirk, they probably go, the best part is when the plane shoots down the German plane and it crashes. And yeah. I, I'm just not, I, I'm not designed that way. And, and I don't know that you are either. Yeah. It's, I, I, we're sensitive. It's, it's, it's plot versus characters and, yeah, I, I'm I'm typically more interested in the in the character arc, and again, that's you know I just got through praising a movie that doesn't really have character arc. But <laughs> well, <I> mean, <laughs> uh, so what are you watching? Are you watching anything uh, new? No, I haven't watched much in the past week or so. Um, I saw I watched the new 
I, I did have a, a really cool experience on Sunday. It was my mother's birthday. Uh, again, not to bring things down, but it was my mom's first birthday since my dad passed. And uh, so we had this Zoom birthday party for her. And I figured out how to do this watch party where we were all watching the movie and we had our, you know, we were watching them on our laptops, but I was able to cast it to my TV. So, you know, I could see my mom while we were watching the movie and we could chat and, you know, type things into the chat too. So we watched uh, the new George Clooney movie that was on Netflix, uh, the midnight sun or the midnight sky, something like that. Some somewhat interesting. It's a sci-fi you know, kind of dystopian movie, a little silly in parts, you know, little stretch your imagination in parts, but it, it more than anything, just, it was really nice to, to watch a movie with someone else. And, you know, I, I, we, I use this website two seven, uh, I give them a little plug two seven dot X, Y, Z. It's a little Chrome extension that you can put into your browser and you can watch things together and use your laptop cameras and, you know, so it was nice. Yeah. We should try that on some movie. Yeah. So I did stumble across a new show that I only watched the first episode of, and then said, okay, this is a show that I'm into. I want to watch. It's called hunters on uh amazon prime al pacino is in it oh yes they're they're like hunting uh nazis right yeah but it's yeah. like dark comedy and the opening scene we'll talk we'll, i hope you watch it and um we can uh figure a podcast or something around it we do have a long list we should start posting a, our list of what we're going to review so we stay disciplined in all the ones that we want to because like kids in a candy store, every time there's a new show that you grab onto, you, yeah. you get misdirected. And then Americans, I think we started season four. Wow. Moving. I got to be honest with you, though. I don't like this part with the daughter. Really? Yeah, I don't know why. So I guess maybe because it's so predictable. So spoiler alert, I guess if you haven't seen the Americans, shut this part off because I'm going to spoil it. And I know Wade has seen it. They tell her the news that they're spies. And they say, you don't tell anybody, though. Let's work through this together. And she agrees and next episode she's telling her pastor and of course her pastor tells the wife and it's so of course this was going to happen what bothers me so much what bothers me and this might be a perception of mine it may be reality i don't know but she has this moral compass now of i don't lie i don't lie i don't lie but she seems to not apply that to her parents she lies to her parents all the time. Um, and it just seems kind of very contradictory. And I, you know, she went on a trip to Russia to see her grandmother. And then it just, I don't know. It doesn't. Well, she lies to her parents because her parents lied to her for her whole life. Right. Yeah. So moral compass is long. I mean, it's just, it doesn't sit. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I 
the other thing too, the pastor finds out there's Russian spy and he doesn't call the FBI. Um, this thing with Stan is a little weird too, with him trying to save this girl in Russia. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure why I'm, I'm still being told her story. Um, they moved her into that facility with that scientist that backfired on her. She didn't do very well there. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know where it's heading after that, but I don't know. I'm starting to think that the show is on a downward curve. Um, You're not alone. Um, there was, I, I think it might, it might've been season four and five were definitely the, 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 the widest though they got they got the most amount of criticism but i'm telling you just just hang in there oh no uh, i'm not giving up i just yeah. um, i'm I, i'm noticing that whenever the show turns to the kids hmm. i i struggle with it like hmm. i compare it to homeland mm-hmm. um when we, when they start talking about brody's daughter or you started to deal more with Brody's daughter it just seemed I don't know maybe it's because I have kids of my own and I'm always constantly dealing with their stuff but it just seems like the writing has to be perfect and it often isn't I guess let's leave yeah. it the one thing I remember about that show was I, I think again I, I think it's it went six seasons right I think there's six out there and I believe after four they announced that they were going to do two more seasons and they kind of did this thing where they probably should have only got one more season. It seems like they didn't have enough story to tell. So season five kind of is this like just treading water type of season where not, you know, it, it the, the show goes at kind of breakneck speeds for those first three to four seasons. And then it just kind of like the breaks go on, and Phillips just really upset all the time, and he's and he's just tortured all the time. Not, I mean, not physically, but uh, oh, you're yeah, talking. It, pay, it pays off. Yeah, I um, I, I guess the part of the if I'm already searching for another show, I, I'm I'm feeling the the pain mm-hmm. of it. Uh, I I'll stick with it. It's definitely not dark, but um, <laughs> we'll uh, we'll keep at it. Again, you know, like you said, the 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 relationship drama there is is what's what makes that show worth it. So, but uh, yeah. I'll make another quick comment, and this isn't the Americans podcast, but another thing that's just on my mind about it is how many times does it seem like Philip and Elizabeth? have each other's trust and that Phillip's thinking she's thinking one way. And then as soon as they get in front of the handler, Elizabeth's like, Oh no, we'll do that. Mm-hmm. The handler will want him to do something like crazy. Like let's start training your daughter to be a spy. And Philip is like, well, I don't know. We mean Elizabeth talked and Elizabeth, like, well, we should definitely do that. And, and then they get in the car and Phillip's like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. Not what was oh I just said that. Well, you just said that 25 times, and Phillips still hasn't learned his lesson. So yeah. Okay. Yeah, she's definitely the more gung-ho, you know, for Mother Russia of the two, but yeah. 
Um, what are you? What else are you watching? Is there? Did you make it through Queen's Gambit? I don't remember. Queen's Gambit. I finished Industry. I finished. I would recommend you finish Industry. I, I really. Uh, that was just a delight of a show for me. Um, the but the yeah, Wandavision's coming out. I I'll, that's in a couple of days. I want to catch that. The Tiger documentary is out. I think the first uh, the first episode of that. And there's only two two of that. There's gonna be another one on Sunday. Want to get into that? Is there any movie and, that you have on the horizon that you want to tackle? Um, well, again, just because of the HBO Max and maybe because of the Wonder Woman uh, lack of success. Disaster. I, should, I shouldn't be too excited about it, but uh, there's a Denzel Washington movie coming to HBO Max that I... I'd like uh, to see that. I saw that. I would I, like to see that. I've heard some other people referring to it as this kind of new genre of garbage crime movie that, uh, you know, like yeah. kind of like a den of thieves, uh, what have you, that I'd... Uh, isn't the I, guy I'm interested. That, isn't the guy that played uh, Frankie Mercury in it too? Yes. Uh, for, uh, Freddie Mercury, yeah, Rami Malek, Jared Leto's in it, yeah. So I get that. Yes, without screwing somebody's name up. Yeah. But um, the other one I've been wanting to check out, I heard good things about, was a, a series on HBO Max with uh, Kaylee Kuoko, the flight attendant. Um, I heard it's kind of this screwball, kind of mystery um, drama, what have you, that I, I'd like to, I'd like to check out. So I saw a poster of it somewhere. Um, so what I wanted, I'm going to change gears now, 180 degrees. Um, have you been watching any college basketball? College basketball, I I have been watching. Um, I saw my my Michigan Wolverines had a big game tonight. They were facing uh, their number nine or their number seven. They were facing Wisconsin, who's number nine, and they had them down by 40 with 12 minutes to go. Um, they got it. Yeah, they only ended up beating them by like 25. But um, yeah, I I. I you know, again, I discussed this on another podcast that I don't know. Maybe that one went in the garbage because we were both uh, down that night. But um, I, I'm having a little bit of trouble with with sports in general these days. Uh, but I, you know, Michigan's playing too well for me to not be interested in it. So, <laughs> yeah, I uh, I think I saw Kentucky the other day, but I. I don't even have the schedule. I don't, I haven't. Kentucky's started. like two and six or something like that. They're terrible. Duke's terrible. It's weird. It's a weird season. We have uh, the top two teams are pretty much consensus uh, Baylor and Gonzaga. Are they talking tournament this year? Are they going to do a tournament? Yeah. They're going to play all the game. All the tournament is going to be in the Indianapolis area. Mm. Um, they're going to play at Purdue and at, and at Indiana and they're going to play at Butler and the final four is going to be in the dome in Indianapolis. So we'll see, um, you know, it'll be interesting. Uh, you know, if, as vaccines continue to roll out, if, if, if we get more in the clear by, by that time, but, you know, again, I kind of just have a problem with not necessarily forcing these kids to play, but it just, I don't know, just the optics of it just doesn't, something just doesn't sit right with me. Mm. Well, I mean, if they're taking the right precautions and, and doing the right things, then hopefully nothing too dangerous will happen. I mean, we got to start heading in the direction of normal eventually. Um, yeah. And with these vaccines coming out, you know, I hope that they can get them out to folks that are susceptible. My mom, your, you know, your mom, 
folks that are a little bit older, a little more frail. Let's let's get them first. Uh, yeah, I think I think I think what bothers me most is that you know the NFL, the NBA, especially college football, they they they're basically only playing because they can't afford not to play, and that that just something about that bothers me. Yeah. You know? So. All right, my friend. Well, I think we finally got the Dunkirk episode done. Um, we got to think of what we're doing next. So no promises now. We have a list. Um, but uh, if you're out there and you uh, hear the jingle at the end, get a kick on our social media. And uh, with that, we'll say good night. If I haven't said it before, Happy New Year. Wade, have a good night. And we'll see ya. Take care. That concludes the show. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'd love to get your support and your opinion of the podcast. So please subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Deep Shots Pod. And on Facebook, Deep Shots Podcast. Email your comments, opinions, and future show suggestions at DeepShotsPod at gmail.com. Stay safe. Much love. Bye.